Is sex sacred? Or at least, can it be? The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown probably wasn't the greatest work of art ever, but it took us all by storm anyway because it exposed a secret fascination lurking beneath the surface of Western culture, sacred sex. Could the sin of all sins, sexual desire, actually be a gateway to the holiest of holies? Sacred sex. Just the thought of it makes your eyes go a little distant. It's a mystical union traversing and uniting polar opposites. Not just male and female, but high and low, sinner and saint, penitent and porn star. But could it be that this mystical feeling, this fascination, this allure, is entirely an artifact of our Western Christian-rooted culture? Perhaps there are other cultures that don't find this idea odd at all. Like, sure, sex can be sacred. Why wouldn't it be? What? Today, we're going to take a brief look at one culture that may have had just such an attitude towards sacred sex, the ancient Sumerians. And we're going to ponder what it may have been like to live in a world where sex and the sacred intertwine. That's what we're talking about today on the History of Sex Short Shorts. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Wailana Kalama, for making this episode possible. Before we get started, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, a brilliant show that sends you to alternate historical timelines. The Black Scourge ravaged Europe, and the great cities were destroyed. Survivors flooded north where Viking longboats ferried them to the New World. As the trail of refugees grew, so too did the ships, and soon massive multi-decked Viking galleys trolled the wine-dark seas, building medieval cities along every coast. I'm Jordan Harbour. Come join me at the Twilight Histories podcast, where you will experience exotic worlds like this one, worlds that never existed in our timeline. An Aztec empire built by Spanish steel, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, an Egypt that never fell. Listen with the lights off and allow the images to take you away. Listen to the Twilight Histories podcast. The Twilight Histories was recently named one of the best listens of 2019 by Apple Podcasts. If you like alternate history or The Twilight Zone, you will love The Twilight Histories. All right, let's start the show. Time for today's Short Shorts. Short Shorts! Short, short. 
Actually, I don't know why I'm calling this a short shorts, because it's pretty much the length of a deep dive, but this is the length it takes to tell the story. So anyway, let's get to the interesting stuff. In Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, spoilers ahead by the way, the main character, Sophie, who grew up living with her grandfather, returns from grad school on spring break one day and stumbles upon a chilling sight. There in the basement, amidst a group of gathered worshippers, she spies her grandfather having sex with his wife as part of some secret cult ritual. And she is so horrified by this that she doesn't talk to him for a decade. Now in chapter 74 of the Da Vinci Code, and by the way, how does a book get to 74 chapters? There's no excuse for that, but I digress. Anyway, in chapter 74, the other main character, Langdon, tells Sophie that actually what she witnessed was a profound act of worship called a Heros Gamos ritual, or sacred union. And that is your cue as the reader or viewer to go, whoa, sacred sex? What? Now, I'm mostly making fun of myself here because personally, I have always been a sucker for this sort of thing. And yes, I did devour the Da Vinci Code along with the rest of you at the time. Confession over, let's continue. The ritual described by Langdon, the Heros Gamos, is a real thing. It's an act of worship that embodies a holy marriage between a god and a goddess. Usually, sometimes it might be aspects of one god. And it may be enacted symbolically or by actual physical sex between two mortal stand-ins who are usually priests and priestesses. And believe it or not, this rite is actually one of the oldest in recorded human history, going all the way back to the Mesopotamian culture of ancient Sumer. But the ancient Sumerians, if you could somehow time travel them to a present day movie theater and show them the Da Vinci Code, they would have had a very different reaction from us. While we were all like, what? They would have been like, uh, what? They would have been puzzled by Sophie's horrified reaction about as puzzled as I was with the choice of Tom Hanks to play Langdon. But again, I digress. See, in ancient Sumer, in all probability, sacred sex was not some hidden secret practiced in a dark basement by cultists, but rather an out-in-the-open, everyday thing common as Christmas. So let's dig into this. What's this ancient Sumer and what was it like to live in a society like that? <laughs> Okay, so Sumer is old. Older than Babylon, older even than Egypt. So old, in fact, that we weren't even aware of it until scholars were trying to decipher cuneiform tablets from Assyria and Babylon, and they were going along fine until they started coming along long stretches of gobbledygook that didn't make any sense until they realized, oh my god, these are two different languages, and one of them is much, much older than the other. Sumer is actually the oldest known city-building culture in history and the oldest known writing culture in history. And yet, by this time, we found so many of their well-preserved clay tablets, and consequently we have so much of their writings, 
that we know more about them than, say, the Vikings or many peoples that are much closer to us in time. So we actually have a pretty strong idea of what their beliefs and attitudes and culture was like, including their ideas about sex. Now their New Year festival, called Akitu, as celebrated in the Sumerian city of Uruk, celebrated the sexual union of the goddess Inanna and her lover Dumuzi. And it happened every year. It was a New Year's festival. It was literally common as Christmas. During the Akitu festival, the high priestess, or Entu, took the role of Inanna, and the king, or En, would take the role of her lover Dumuzi, and their sexual coupling renewed the blessing of the goddess, granted rulership to the king, and fertility to the land. Now, scholars disagree on the details of the ritual exactly, but one speculative reconstruction of it paints it something like this. So the goddess-slash-high priestess is bathed, while the king-slash-god and his retinue process toward her shrine, Love songs are sung, which, in my opinion, rank among some of the best erotic poetry of all time. And when he arrives, she greets him at her door. He presents her with gifts. The two are seated upon thrones, and then they lie down upon a specially constructed marriage bed for consummation of the marriage. Now, whether this consummation was real physical sex or just symbolic sex is debated. We can't really say. But even the suggestion of it shows something about the Sumerians' attitude toward religion on the one hand and sex on the other. Now, what was it like to take part in a ritual like this, if indeed the consummation was a physical sexual coupling? Probably nerve-wracking, I would say. I mean, who wants to have sex on command knowing that people are waiting, perhaps even watching? The less pious among them might be snickering that the king can no longer get it up or that the high priestess is more saggy than last year. It sounds like more pressure than pleasure to me. But the more interesting question, for me at least, is not so much what was it like to take part in the ritual, but what was it like to live in a society where there were sexual rituals like this? What was it like for the average farmer or shepherd or baker or tavern keeper to approach sex with the attitude that it was, or at least could be, sacred? Well, we can get an idea of that by looking at the imagery in their art and literature. It is clear from Sumerian literature that they were quite frank and forthright about sex. It is not alluded to with giggles and teehees, but just totally right out there. And it's not covered up by euphemisms. Here, for example, is an excerpt from the hymns sung at the sacred New Year festival just described. The goddess Inanna says, My vulva, the horn, the boat of heaven is full of eagerness like the young moon. My untilled land lies fallow. As for me, Inanna, who will plow my vulva? Who will plow my high field? Who will plow my wet ground? Now that's beautiful and also bold. There's no covering anything up with euphemism. There's no coyly alluding to anything here. It's just blatantly and uninhibitedly sexual. Nor is it just the female body that is treated in this way. Here's another excerpt from the hymns where Inanna actually describes her lover Demuzi's member. He has sprouted, he has burgeoned, he has lettuce planted by the water. He is the one my womb 
loves best. Now, the wild lettuce plant, I believe, has a tall stalk, as I understand it anyway, so I think that is what the phallic reference is here, but just listen to that. I mean, he has sprouted, he has burgeoned, he has lettuce planted by the water. You never get to hear that about the male junk being spoken of in a beautiful way. I mean, it actually kind of makes me feel good about myself as a man. I don't know, it's kind of touching for me. In any case, this frankness about sex suggests a certain level of acceptance of it as just normal and healthy rather than sinful. Moreover, there are other things in Sumerian society that we can point to. For example, prostitution. Prostitution in Sumer was abundant. And by looking at how this important aspect of their economy and their society, we can get a fuller picture of their attitudes about sex. Now, there were prostitutes of all levels, from lowly to exalted, and some scholars even call the high priestess of the aforementioned ritual a kind of sacred prostitute, quote-unquote. Personally, I think that stretches the term prostitute a little far. Nevertheless, there were prostitutes, and some of them may have been sacred prostitutes, and visiting such a prostitute, female or male, by the way, might possibly have been experienced as an act of worship. So let's dig into this a little deeper. To make this easier, we'll break down all the complicated bit about Sumerian prostitutes into just three basic categories. Prostitutes, temple prostitutes, and sacred priestesses, and we'll take them one at a time. Okay, so the basic prostitute, or karkid, as the term is in Sumerian, was basically the professional that we know from virtually all places and ages. She or he plied their trade for profit, often in taverns. Now, was an encounter of this kind with this sort of prostitute experienced as sacred? Maybe. These were secular prostitutes, but only in the sense of being independent from the temple institution, not necessarily in the sense of being like irreligious or something like that. On the contrary, religion infused all walks of life in ancient Sumer, and in fact the goddess Inanna was the patron of prostitutes, so you can imagine a little shrine hanging above the bed to which a professional and a client might go and offer some token obeisance, you know, the equivalent of crossing yourself before getting down to business on the bed just below it. And this would seem to suggest that visiting a prostitute, even of this most mundane and secular sort, was, at minimum, not sinful. It might have had at least a minor aura of the sacred, although it may still have been quite bawdy, but it wasn't sinful. That is the point. Now, the next category of prostitute is the temple prostitute. This was a professional, much like the karkid that we were just discussing, but one which was employed by the temple. And by employed, I should really say owned, because these were often slaves. Slavery was common in ancient Mesopotamia, and temples were no less shy about owning people than anyone else was. The temple prostitute was typically a slave whose owner just happened to be the temple. Now, was an encounter with this kind of prostitute any more holy than that with the secular kind? 
I mean, the slavery aspect might seem to suggest no, but then again, that might be a modern bias of ours. See, slavery in the ancient world was very different than, say, in the antebellum American South before the Civil War. In America, a racial element enabled owners to see slaves as less than human and therefore expendable to treat them terribly. But that was not the case in the ancient world. It was quite different. In fact, in many times and places, a slave might actually enjoy a higher standard of living than a free person. For example, that was often the case in the Roman Empire, when independent citizens might starve for lack of work, but slaves would be secure in the household of the wealthy who could actually afford them. So what I'm trying to say is just being a slave in the ancient world doesn't necessarily equal some entirely debased and lowly standard of living. Rather, it is in fact entirely possible that these temple slaves in ancient Sumer enjoyed a decent standard of living and a visit to one may have had a greater religious element than with the secular Kharkid, if only due to the fact of being in a temple. You probably went to the temple to have sex with these temple slaves, so, you know, that alone is going to change your mindset. Still, I suspect that the greatest experience of sacred sex, the kind of mystical rapture of which, you know, a poet like Rumi might have written had he lived in ancient Sumer, was likely reserved for our third and final category, a certain class of priests and priestesses. And now, like I said, I don't think these should even be considered prostitutes, but many scholars do, so whatever. Anyway, the Entu, or High Priestess, of Uruk's New Year Festival would be one example of these, but there were also many others. A quite common example, in fact, was the mortal spouse of a deity. That was their role. These were known in later Akkadian periods as Kadishtu, and likely had Sumerian predecessors, although the Sumerian term has thus far eluded me, I just haven't been able to find it in the literature. And actually, we saw an example of this brought to life on the silver screen in Game of Thrones. If you recall the witch, quote-unquote, Miri Mazdur, you know, the lady who used blood magic to help Daenerys save her husband Drogo? She was a god's wife, as they called it within that story, a god's wife of the great shepherd married to that deity. Now, this practice was actually quite common in ancient Mesopotamia. Women, and possibly also men, were married to deities and dedicated to them in the same way that you would be to any other kind of spouse. And sex with these special divine spouses was not open to all and sundry like any common prostitute. On the contrary, in fact, it was highly restricted if they had sex with any mortals at all. Sources suggest that the deity came to them in the night, and whether that meant symbolic sex or actually physical sex with, say, you know, a priest that comes in in the guise of the deity, that too is hotly debated. Sex may possibly have been part of religious acts of worship. So those are the three categories of prostitutes. The secular karkid, the temple prostitute, and the sacred priest or priestess. Now, putting all of this together, this cross-section of the spectrum of prostitution in ancient Sumer suggests something larger about attitudes towards sex in general, whether with prostitutes or not. It would seem to suggest that, depending on the context, 
sex was probably experienced in a variety of different ways to various different degrees of sacredness. It likely ran the gamut from minor acts of obeisance, equivalent to crossing yourself before getting down to business, as with a karkid, to getting it on in an actual temple with actual temple personnel, possibly slaves, and even perhaps as high as entering into a spiritually elevating experience with a highly restricted ritual priest or priestess. Now, how much this sex actually felt like worship probably varied with the context running along this gamut, but in no context, in no part of this spectrum, do we have even the slightest indication that it would have felt irreligious or sinful. Nothing we have suggests anything of that sort. Quite to the contrary, sex was, for the Sumerians, a natural part of life infused, like everything else, with the presence of the divine. Now, considering this context, sex might perhaps have had a feeling of bringing together the sacred and the mundane, but it definitely did not have the feeling of bringing together the saintly and the sinful, because it wasn't experienced as sinful. That wouldn't have computed to a Sumerian mind. The Da Vinci Code would not have made sense to the ancient Sumerians. They would have looked at that scene of worshipful sex in Sophie's grandfather's basement and been like, yeah, what? I, why is everybody reacting so weird to this scene? I don't, it's just sex. <laughs> they wouldn't have understood the horror and the revulsion felt by the main character or the audience for that matter because they had no association of sex with sin or with forbidden fruit. So then, how did the attitude towards sex transform through the ages so that eventually, by today, we end up with something like the Da Vinci Code? Well, it didn't happen overnight. The Sumerian attitude towards sex, sacred in some contexts, perhaps mundane in others, but sinful in none, persisted to a greater or lesser degree throughout the ancient world. And not all cultures after the Sumerians were quite as open and forthright about sex, but they all shared the basic attitude in broad outlines. The Greek attitude, for example, was a little more circumspect, but generally similar. Herodotus, the historian, portrayed temple prostitution in Asia Minor as a little disgusting, but more because it was weird to him, you know, something foreigners do, than because it was, like, seen as irreligious or something. Even into the Greek and then the later Roman periods, attitudes remained largely positive or neutral towards sex, and they did not take a turn for the negative until the advent of Christianity. Even Judaism, from which Christianity emerged, had always had a go-forth-and-multiply attitude towards sex, but it was specifically Christianity that turned it into sin. The ministry of Jesus of Galilee was largely characterized by taking external physical acts and giving them an internal psychological dimension. For example, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, what's going on in this passage is attention is being refocused onto one's inner mind state where lurks desire. Whereas previously only the act 
of adultery had been seen as a sin. Now even the thought of adultery was forbidden. The sin of adultery became the sin of sexual desire itself, generally. Even desire for your lawful spouse became somewhat questionable from this view. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's best not to have sex. And if you can't avoid temptation, then sure, go ahead and marry and have sex, but only because it's better to marry than to burn, not because sex is good. Now that's a long way from the command, go forth and multiply. That's more like multiply only if you must, and if you must, for the love of God, don't enjoy it. <laughs> Christianity made sex into sin. But by the very same token, sex also became more attractive than ever because now it was the forbidden fruit and there's no more surefire way to get people to obsess over something than to forbid it and boy did people obsess over sex even venturing into the titillating thought of sex as worship i mean ever since the idea of sex as worship has been an object of irresistible allure and fascination contemplated in secret, in private, in the dark. It's the kind of thing that you would never do, but what if there were people who did? Oh, they would be sinful. Oh, they would be devious. Oh, they would be heretics. But yes, I would pay to see that. The Da Vinci Code, yes please. That is how Dan Brown made it to the top of the bestseller list and the box office because it gave voice to something that people were burning for, sacred sex. The impossible reconciliation of opposites, high and low, saint and sinner, prayer and porn, could be contemplated safely within the pages of a book or on the silver screen at the comfortable distance of art without feeling like you were committing a sin, but still enjoying the titillating thought of what if and experiencing something of that distant-eyed mystical feeling. Now in contrast, in ancient Sumer, Dan Brown's book never would have sold a copy, not a single one. They would have seen it as a relatively mediocre story about a relatively common theme with characters to which they couldn't relate. Your grandma and grandpa were having sex in the basement while people prayed, so what? Sacred sex, yeah, we get it, whatever, we see it every year, what? <laughs> And that's how they would have saw it. And that, my dear listeners, that's about what we have to say for sacred sex in ancient Sumer. Well, almost. I mean, the last thing worth mentioning is, you know, as different as the Sumerian attitude towards sex may feel to most of us today, they're not the only ones who had that attitude. In fact, there are actually people today who still share that ancient mindset. For example, Wicca is a fast-growing religion that does often include an element of the sacred union in many of its religious rituals. It's called the Great Rite. The sex involved is entirely symbolic for most Wiccan groups, with the male principle represented by a dagger called an athame, solemnly inserted into a bowl embodying the female principle. However, there are some groups, even today, where the sex may actually be consummated with real physical coupling. And I've actually talked to people who have attended such rituals, and their reaction is generally, meh, been there, done that, wasn't that great. <laughs> 
it's not that titillating after the first time or two, and it's not exactly the kind of thing that'll just pop up in your search on Pornhub either. I mean, this is just regular people. It's gonna be more sweaty than sexy, it's gonna be more liver spots than licentiousness. It's not that it can't be moving or spiritually elevating, it certainly can be. It's just that it's not the peep show that outsiders might expect. After all, you know, it's not going to be models or porn stars on that altar. It's going to be your grandma and grandpa, just like Sophie in the basement that horrifying, horrifying night. It's not that horrifying. <laughs> At least, it would not have been to the ancient Sumerians. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing, or by contributing on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a sexy tavern lady of the night or lad of the night, or the spouse of a god or goddess like Miri Mazdura in Game of Thrones, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.